yesterday. We were talking about, okay, so how do we deal with um, the fact that we have a supernatural enemy? And it's not, when I say we have, I don't mean just the church. I mean humans. Humans have a supernatural enemy. Humans have a supernatural enemy. And the aim of this supernatural enemy is to use, is to use pain and pleasure, is to use pain and pleasure to blind and dull, to blind and dull us to God, to blind and dull us to God, to make us self-centered and self-reliant and to strip us of what it is to be human. So mankind, and so we're not just talking about Christians, mankind as in ones that believe in Jesus Christ and have received him as Lord and Savior, ones that are religious, ones that aren't religious, ones that do not believe in God, doesn't matter. Humans have a supernatural enemy. Mankind has a supernatural enemy. And that enemy aims at using pain and pleasure to blind and dull us to God, to make us self-centered and self-reliant, and to strip us of what it is to be human. And what is it to be human? If you want to know what it is to be human, you have to look at Eden chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Eden. What did he promise there? He promised dignity. He promised security. He promised provision. He promised freedom. He promised comfort, uh, companionship and intimacy. He promised purpose. He promised uh, happiness. Or because the very name Eden meant delight. He promised these things, and there's one, I think there's one or two more, I forgot. And the intent of this supernatural um, enemy is to use pain and pleasure to blind and dull us to God, to make us self-centered and self-reliant, to strip us of what it is to be human by removing these things and giving us a counterfeit version of it. And this has been going on for 4,000 years or 6,000 years or however old you want the earth or mankind to be. That's what he aims at with all mankind. With Christians, his intent is, can I destroy your faith in Christ? Can I destroy your faith in Jesus Christ? Again, using pain or pleasure to either draw you away from or to turn you against. Can I destroy your faith? If you're a believer, that's Satan's activity. His activity is, can I, I, can I destroy your faith? And in the process, he uses value systems. He fuels and shapes value systems. 
he uh, uses ideologies, he uses institutions, he uses uh, religions, he uses the socio-economic, religio-politic systems of the world, all of them corrupted by values that have very little to do with God. Take any, any system, any ideology, any economic system, any socio-religio-political system, and it's been corrupted. How does it get corrupted? These are the three things used to corrupt it. Blind and dull you to God, make yourself centered and self-reliant. Capitalism stinks of this. Strip us of what it is to be human. Every system is meant to do those three things so that man is stripped of what it is to be human. Doesn't matter whether you take a democratic system, a capitalistic system, a communist system. Doesn't matter which economic system you choose. Which religion? Even Christianity is a religion. Look what we just prayed about. I mean, how does a how does how does a Christian denomination? And I'm not pointing a finger at the Catholics, the Presbyterians, Methodists, Anglicans, different uh, denominations were involved. How do we go from Christ to decimating a culture? How? Any questions, guys? Any questions, any thoughts? Not you. Any questions, any thoughts? Okay. Yep. Yeah, it's impossible to deal with it as an individual. You can be the strongest person you need to be, but you still can't deal with this individually. Yeah, the question, uh, the comment Karen made was that it, it makes her more aware that to deal with something like this, you cannot deal with it as an individual, but you have to deal with it as a part of a people or part of a group because it's impossible to deal with this on your own, even if you were the strongest person alive. Not possible. So, First Peter five nine kind of First Peter five nine kind of gives us an idea of um, who the devil is, um, and we we'll use scriptures to tell us what we need to be aware of or how we need to see him. He so the First Peter five nine calls him the devil, and then says that he is a fierce lion a fierce lion. Then it says he prowls around. Prowls around. Oi! Oi! Prowls around. Then it says he roars. Then it says he seeks who he may, seeks out prey. And then it says he devours. 
Look at that, eh? This is, this is from scripture. This is not trying to create something that doesn't exist. In that one verse, it says that the devil is a fierce lion. So there is a, there is a fierceness to his beastness. I know it's grammatically wrong. And then he prowls, so he, he, he's on the hunt. He roars, and his roar is meant to frighten, to intimidate. He seeks out prey, so he's not aimless, and he devours. So this is real. The Bible says so. God is giving us an idea of what we are looking at. And so it's impossible to then deal with it unless you have a four-legged table or a four-wheeled car or whatever you want to call it. And uh, the way, some of the basics that we need to understand, if you want to have any success in combat is you need to know Christ not as just God but as the Lord and the Savior of your life. You need to know, you need to have a lifestyle that um, um, is rooted in Christ. Three, you need to have knowledge of the word and four, you need to be part of a people, like Karen was saying, part of a people of God. Otherwise, uh, this is very effective. The reason the enemy is effective is because people usually don't have this. You have to have Christ as Savior and Lord. You cannot have a Savior till you admit you need saving. You cannot be saved unless you acknowledge that you are s sinful. And that is when you receive Christ as Savior and declare him as Lord. Then you have a lifestyle that is rooted in Christ and reflects his character. Then you have the word of God, which is the only thing that combats the enemy. And then finally you have, you're part of a people of God. And so it becomes very hard for this lion to devour you because... Uh, like I said yesterday, it's the stragglers who get picked out, not the ones that are part of the herd. Isolate yourself, and it usually ends up in um, you being devoured. Cool? Not cool, actually, but cool. So what's our posture before we even pray? We're talking, what are we dealing with over the last two days? How do we deal with the devil? How do we deal with the supernatural enemy? So the first question is, what's the posture even before prayer? And you see that uh, outlined in Ephesians 6.18 and 1 Peter 5.8. Ephesians 6.18 and 1 Peter 5.8. If you read it, here's what it says. Ephesians 6.18 and 1 Peter 5.8. It says, praying always with all prayer. and ah, Let me read it from NIV. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 1 Peter 5.9, uh, 5.8, 1 Peter 5. 
Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Resist him in standing firm in faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So here are the things that we need to um, adopt as a posture even before praying. First, these are very simple things, guys. It's not terribly complicated. Alertness that is persistent. Alertness that is persistent. How best can I describe this? When you drive, you have to be alert. And you can't be alert at the beginning of your drive or at the end of the drive. Those are the times when you can kind of take it easy. Alertness is how we drive. As soon as we sit in that car, you become alert. I was driving with, um, what's his name? Evan, uh, last week. Evan was so alert, even though I was driving, that every time I would take a right turn or a left turn, he would shoulder check twice, even though I had already shoulder checked. And I'm driving and I'm turning right and I'm him, I see him going. <laughs> I, I, there, there's an alertness that we drive with that is fascinating. And it's the same thing that God is saying, is the posture that I need to develop. Alertness that is persistent. And this isn't difficult. We do this in so many other areas of life. But unfortunately, when it comes to spiritual things, we just don't. I don't understand why. To be alert spiritually. Till it becomes a habit. You don't tell yourself as you get into the car, alert now, alert. You don't write alert and stick it on your uh, driving steering wheel saying, alert, alert. No, it's just become natural because it's a habit. Because you realize what will happen if you're not alert. Because this is spiritual and not visible, we are not alert because there's nothing to harm us. There's no semi coming your way from the right or profil uh, driving uh, Don's car from the left. So... <laughs> So, so you know you're safe, or you think you're safe, when in reality, the spiritual invisible is more real than the visible. And so alertness, that is persistent. Second, sober. Go back to driving. I mean, one of the things that Evan told Praful right off the bat when he started taking him driving, you've got to stop drinking. And so... After that, Praful would not touch a bottle of water. He just stopped drinking after that. Because you have to be sober. And it's the same thing. I'm sorry, man. He told me everything about your driving, Praful. I hope your parents are not watching this. We're just talking about water. <laughs> so the second thing is to be sober. As in, so, to be sober is simply not to over or underestimate over or underestimate yourself or the enemy. Or the enemy. To neither overestimate nor underestimate either yourself or the enemy. That's sober. It's to be it's to be clear headed. It's to be clear headed. These are not difficult things. It's just a posture. It's just that, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's just that we haven't gotten into the habit of this. Once you get into the habit of it, it becomes very natural, like driving. You're just naturally sober, naturally alert. And what happens then is you see trouble a mile away. I remember this friend of mine, amazing He's sitting in the front of the bus, and he's, this is in India. It happens quite often, so it's not surprising. Um, so he's sitting in the front of the bus, and there's this truck coming towards him. And the driver who's driving the bus has no problems, but he's sitting in the front of the bus, and he knows 
for some strange reason, that that truck is going to hit the bus. So he gets up from the front of the bus and goes sits right at the back of the bus, and the truck comes and hits the front of the bus. And a lot of people in the front get hurt. He's right at the back, and he walks out of the bus without a problem. Why? Because he was alert enough to know that the way that truck is coming, it's going to move from this side of the road to this side of the road. And it's going to stay on this side. India, you usually move from this side to this side, but you go back. But he somehow knew this guy would not go back. And so he goes to the back of the bus. <laughs> and it saves his life, man. This is not an exaggeration. I'm, I remember him telling the story, and instead of feeling bad, I started laughing my head off. But alertness is seeing trouble a mile away and knowing, if I do this and this, I can help this person out, save this person's life, save my life. This is very simple. A lot of us get into trouble because we are not sober or alert. We think that because we have had two good days that we can handle the world. Next. All this is in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Just look at, look at it again. 1 Peter 5, 7 to 9. All of this is there. So starting at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So the next thing is, guys, these are our postures before we even pray. Cast your anxiety on God. Cast, cast your anxiety on God. Whenever I'm anxious, whenever I'm having trouble, uh, it is best that I cast my anxiety on God quickly because the devil loves exploiting my anxiety. One of the ways he really wrecks our lives is something happens that is really stressful. And because we don't take it to God immediately, because we think we can deal with it, because we think God may not help, because of many different reasons, we don't go to him immediately. And because you don't go to him immediately, Satan swoops in and begins to really mess up what you're stressing about. And so Peter starts off saying, listen, as soon as you're anxious, take it to God. Because once you deposit that sack of anxiety at God's feet, you now have your hands free to do what you need to instead of holding this with one hand while battling the enemy. This is such a cool posture where you don't wait, but you bring it to him and say, here, I'm really struggling with this. It doesn't mean it is solved immediately, but it certainly means it's handed over immediately. Children do this. If Phoebe has a problem, she ain't waiting till service gets over. Wah! And she'll immediately deal with the problem. And occasionally say no. Fourth, fourth one. Firm in faith. Firm in faith. Firm in faith. And what does that mean? Firm in faith. Guys, the other thing is once you give your anxieties immediately to God, it's literally like your mind is at rest. And the mind is where most of the battles happen. Your mind is at rest. You literally wear the helmet that protects your head. Firm in faith. What do you mean by firm in faith? Firm in faith is establishing who you are to God. Establishing who you are to God. 
establishing who God is and uh, retrieving promises of God. That's what firm in faith looks like. Promises of God. This is just posture in prayer. As in, all right, so what does it mean to be firm in faith? Firm in faith is not going through the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or repeating scriptures. Firm in faith is quickly aligning yourself so you know how much God cares for you and who you are to God. And then quickly remembering who God says he will be in this situation. And then retrieving promises that God has said to you. That's what firm in faith. It gives you, it gives you traction, man. It's like, but I am his much-loved child. He is my father. He didn't even need to swear it, but he's going to take care of me. He never leaves me. In this particular situation, he said he'd take care of me. All right? So I know where I stand with him. Now, who is he? And then you begin to remember who he is. I was praying for someone this morning who was struggling with something. And I asked him, so who is God to you? And the person said, he is Lord God Almighty. I thought to myself, man, your problem is going to get solved before you even hit the road. Because suddenly you re recognize who God is. And then finally it is pulling out the promises that have been given to you already. Have been given to you. Three simple ways, man. Any questions? No? To be effective against Satan in your own life and in this city, one of the things that we have to do is hate sin. Hate sin. This has to be something that you establish inside you. That I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to nibble on it. I'm not going to frequent it every so often. I'm not going to have ten good days and one bad day. I'm not going to let my hair down with sin. I'm not going to be Samson. Because I usually, Samson usually ends up dying or ends up having his eyes gouged out. It's just not my style. You have to decide to hate sin, a hatred for sin. Sin is anti God. Sin is anti God. We don't think so. We think of sin as something that is natural to humans, so it's okay. Sin is anti-God. When I sin, I love, when I sin, I love what God hates and intensely loathes. I want us to remember that, eh? Sin is anti-God. When I sin, I, l I am loving something he absolutely hates and intensely loathes. This whole cheap grace thing has made sin something that uh, is like a 
friendly thing that God says, yeah, I understand. I love you still. And so it becomes like this python that God keeps in heaven as a pet. Not true. He hates it. He has, in, he's a, he has an intense loathing for sin. He hates it. And every time I choose this, I'm loving something that he intensely loathes and that he hates. You don't like COVID-19, do you? Even after the vaccination, it's not like, I actually like you now. There's an intense loathing for every variant. When I sin, God isn't really saying what we Christians say. You know, I love you, Jacob. I just hate the sin. It's a standard uh, uh, statement, right? God loves the... God loves the sinner, just hates the sin. It's a nice statement. It's, it makes you all friendly and warm and gooey. But at the end of the day, it is not sin that is being sent to hell. It is the sinner that is being sent to hell. God is not punishing sin in hell. He's punishing the sinner. God hates sin. And sin doesn't exist like a wisp, like mist. Sin always exists only in hearts. And if it doesn't exist in a heart, it doesn't exist at all. Sin is not some kind of ethereal thing that's floating around saying, who shall I come and sit on? No, it's always something that lives only if it finds a heart. And as much as it is true that Jesus loves, please don't for a second thing that he comes to me and says, oh, Jacob, you're sinning again. I love you, Jacob. I just hate the sin you're doing. No. He finds it loathsome that I sin. And then having such intense loathing for sin, he now sends his son to die for me. Which is why love is stunning. God finds, I know these words will sound so anti-grace that it's hard to swallow. But God finds me repugnant because of my rebellion, just like I find wickedness and wicked people reprehensible, reprehensible because of their sin. I mean, when we talk about uh, this uh, 750 bodies being found, does it make you feel any better that, oh, it's just sin. We should love the sinner. Is that your normal reaction? No. When you hear of someone in power who was uh, supposedly a Christian abusing women, what is your reaction? Oh, poor guy. Just love him. Just hate the sin. Is that your reaction? You as human beings, if you don't have that reaction, what do you think God feels? He finds this, he finds me odious and repugnant when I sin. Just as I would find someone rep reprehensible if they were doing something terribly wicked. And after he feels that, he then rises up and says, but this boy I will love. And this boy I will lay my life down for. This boy I will die for. It is not that he doesn't see it as repugnant. He says, despite how I feel about him and his sin, I will choose to love him. And therein lies the love that was shown on the cross. And if we don't realize how loathsome it is in his sight, we will not realize how loving it is on the cross. And what does cheap grace do? Cheap grace makes it tolerable. And it cheapens what God did on the cross. 
So John 3.16 then can be reworded. God so loves this city that is so loathsome to him in its wickedness that he gives up his beloved son to die for it so that lives can be changed inside out to enjoy his delight, enjoy his holiness, enjoy his love. God so loves this loathsome city because of its wickedness. God so loves this city that is loathsome to him in its wickedness that he gives up his beloved son to die so that lives can be changed inside out to enjoy his delight, his holiness and love. That's how we need to see John 3.16. It's Michelangelo's painting all over again. Sistine Chapel. There's Adam on one side and then there's God on the other side. God looks a little older, wiser, perhaps fairer, with a bigger beard, reaching out and touching Adam. That's what we've done with sin too. God is holy, man is unholy, but it's okay. God tolerates sin. He sent his son to die. Now it's all taken care of. So let's just hold hands and sing Kumbaya. God ain't into it, man. He absolutely loathes it. We have made sin something that is God-friendly, and it ain't. Until we get to this point, guys, we have very little traction with undoing the works of the devil. Because he's been someone who's a liar, murderer, thief, right from the beginning. I love what Jesus says. And I want to get to that point where we get two hours a day where we can say what Jesus says. That the prince of darkness has come, but he has nothing in me. What a cool statement, eh? He has nothing in me. Any questions, any comments, any disagreements? You agree with this? Hmm. Just take off your mask and say it. Yeah. Um, how do I move from sin happens uh, every so often to hating it? Um, till you know how good something is, you will not be able to give up what is less. How once you taste how good something is, it becomes easier for you to hold on to that which is good and hate that which was less. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just say. Go ahead. Okay, just one sec. Let me just write down that point because I'd have probably come to it second. Just say it again, Marcus. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the first point is um, till you realize how good something is,
you will not hate what you have. So that's the first point. Unfortunately, you cannot know how good something is till you spend some time getting used to it. You cannot know how good something is till you spend some time in it. That is when you realize this is so worth it. Why would I exchange this for that? Why would I? Why would I exchange this for that? This is too good. Why would I give this up? But the thing is, most Christians don't even discover how good it is because they don't spend enough time figuring it out. Everything must be instant. Doesn't work that way. So that's the first point. The second point is to make up your mind as in make a decision that I have been set apart, called, paid for with a huge price and now that that has happened I am going to die to everything that I used to be so that I can attach myself or cleave to the one person who paid the ultimate price for me. We do this in human life. eh? Someone does you a favor and you will now do anything for them. You love somebody and they pull you out of a bad situation and you, 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 you now owe them for the rest of your life. These are two ways that I used to shift from tolerating sin to absolute hatred for it. And if I don't hate sin, I will not be able to combat the enemy. You know, I'm not so worried about combating the enemy for myself. But as a church, as a pastor, if I do not have the ability to combat the enemy in your life or in someone else's life out there, then what's going to happen? What is going to happen out there when people are demonized, people have problems with evil, people are caught, trapped, plundered? Who's going to set them free? Who? If I am not able to function like this, if you are not able to function like this, who sets them free? Where do they go? They go to their priests, their witch doctors, their religion, their rituals. And what do those rituals do? But dig a hole that is deeper, that is inescapable. Who? This is not so much for us, man. Even if tomorrow we were to die in terrible torment, in a second you would be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Our tickets are booked. Everything is good. There should be a hatred for sin. Hate it. When you're caught in it, get out of it and hate it. And use these two ways. I remember being caught up in so many different sins when I first became a believer. And my God, man, it was impossible to escape them until I began to taste how good God is. And once I tasted how good Jesus is, I used to think to myself, really, Jacob, you want to go back to that? That tastes worse than vomit, and I haven't tasted vomit. I just want to gross you out. You want to go back to that? When you got this? Guys, we got to come to a place where the exchange is so lousy that you have to be stupid. But as long as I don't see how good this is, I'll keep I'll be willing to exchange. 
Any questions, any thoughts? Okay. So let's look at what effective um, combat. Just we'll take three things. And the reason I'm going over these three things is because while we have this 49-day prayer that has been going on for the last 15 days, I want us to begin to take up um, uh, to, to use slightly heavier artillery than we have been using thus far. So effective combat against the work of the supernatural enemy that we have, not even for our sake, but for the sake of the city, um, usually involves prayer or action that counters Satan's intent And you do that for yourself, you do that for other believers who you know may be struggling with things, and you do that for the city or people that you are assigned to or that God tells you to pray for. That's basically what combating the supernatural enemy in its very uh, basic, that's what it is. It is either prayer or action that counters Satan's intent. And you do that for yourself, you do that for other believers or saints, as the Bible calls them. And then you do it for the city or for people or for different situations that you are assigned to. This is what Christians are supposed to do. Jesus would send them out to do exactly this. The Holy Spirit came in Isaiah 61 to do exactly this. Who does he do it through? Always through people. Jesus works through people. He can work directly, but he loves using people. So during the next 49 days, we want to turn Isaiah 42. Go to Isaiah 42, 22. Isaiah 42, 22. Isaiah 42, Look at what it says there. We want to turn Isaiah 42, 22 to Isaiah 32, 1 to 3. So let's read Isaiah 42, 22 first. It says there, This is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. So typical of situations around us. Eh? This is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. It could be your life, it could be the life of someone you know, it could be the life of someone who does not know Jesus Christ. Regardless, this is the condition. And then we go to Isaiah 32, 1 to 4. Isaiah 32, 1 to 4. And that's what I'm hoping will happen through the way we pray from now on. Isaiah 32, verses 1 to 4. Here's what it says. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. As in, it's talking about him as king and we as his rulers. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. The point being, hey guys, can I have you fight a certain way so that people come to you and they find refuge? That you become a shelter in the storm, you become a shadow when it's really nasty like this. So let's look at those three methods of combat. So here are the three th 
things that I'm hoping we can pray over the next 34 days that are left in our 49-day thingy. One, basic combat one. Guys, um, when you pray for the city, God, uh, Satan blinds people to the gospel. Satan blinds people to the gospel. He um, yeah, especially when he knows that there are people now who want to do good, he begins to work even harder. So he actively opposes. He actively opposes any attempt. He actively opposes any attempt um, people make with the gospel. He actively opposes. So for this city, if you're praying, this is something we'll have to focus on. How does he oppose them? How does he blind their minds? Through distraction, through religion, as in traditional legalistic Christianity that doesn't have Christ at the center. Through distraction, through religion, through false religions, through false religions, and through sheer hostility to the gospel. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Just so you know that it's in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's an active blinding of the minds of unbelievers. So one of the things we'll have to start praying is that, oh God, as we begin to pray for this city, uh, we're going to use 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 10.5. 10.4 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10.4 and 5. We're going to actively start using that to pray for people from now on. This is basic combat where we begin to do harm to the enemy. Second Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Guys, we don't realize how powerful arguments are and how arguments can become strongholds. What happened in the Garden of Eden? There was an argument. What was the argument? You really think God is good? And they actually began to listen to that argument. An argument is not some kind of a fight. An argument is presenting a different way of thinking so that you begin to question what God has said. The essence of sin is to stop believing what God has said. Arguments lead to strongholds. And so we are now beginning to say, starting tomorrow when we start praying, that, oh God, we start pulling down arguments that are being raised in this city. That Christ is this, or Christ is that, or this God is this, or this God is that. Now we actively begin to come against an enemy who's blinding the minds of thousands and thousands and thousands. 
This will be fun. This is what the church is meant to do. It says in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What does that mean? That if the, if, if, if the enemy has uh, uh, frontal attack, that the church can go against it, break it and take out captives that are being held so that they can know Christ. Look at our lives, man. There's not a life here that was born Christian, as in you didn't drop down from heaven. You had so many problems. There's a Marxist here. There are at least two drug addicts here. Uh, I could go down a long list. And God had the ability to grab us and pull us out. Not two, more than two. The point being, guys, from now on, we begin to pray like this. Satan, you've been blinding the minds of people. Now we come as a church to stop this blinding. We pull down the arguments that you set up in minds. We pull down strongholds you've set up in minds. We begin to destroy them so that people can be set free. Because this is what keeps people captive, eh? The thinking. Thinking keeps people captive. Change the thinking, the person is free. It's fascinating. Just think of this. One day, I thought and you thought that we have actually sinned and that no religion, no going to church, no ritual, no connections is ever going to take away that sin. And then we began to think that there is someone who's paid for that sin. And then we began to think, we need this person. And then we began to think, I want to receive this person. And then we put our thoughts into words and we said, I receive you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Your thought changed your life. Sins will not be remembered anymore. Thinking changes your life. This is why we need to understand how, you know, the best way to think of it is, is, is a vice-like grip that's a supernatural enemy who's much more powerful than humans, has on the minds of people, almost crushing their minds from thinking. And then you begin to, a church begins to, 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, 50 people, begin to pray a simple prayer saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, we break this vice and this blindness on the minds of the people of the city. And the grip begins to loosen. He has no choice because he has walked before God and he was thrown out from the presence of God. He knows the omnipotence of God like nobody else does. And he's scared and he's frightened. And when a people begin to take that name that he has seen, that broke his back at Calvary, he begins to loosen this grip. And suddenly minds that have had no ability to handle the gospel begin to open to the gospel with simple words like Jesus, grace, love, kindness. It begins to open up. And lives one by one begin to turn to God. We don't see it on CNN or on global TV, but it begins to happen. How do you think you got saved? Someone was praying for you, man. My God. The number of women who were fasting for me, older women who were fasting for me, younger women never fasted for me. But older women, a lot of them. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, it actually says that Paul was hindered from going to Thessalonica by Satan. 
This is real, guys. Paul was hindered. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 I wanted to come to you, but I was hindered by Satan. As in, I was blocked by Satan. It's real. This is Paul saying it. He was a champion. How come he got blocked? Next. Basic combat two. Come against whatever is normalized in your city. Come against what is normalized in your city. Come against what is normalized in your city. Because whatever is normalized in your city is what's going to come and try to enter the church. Come against what is normalized in your city. Because whatever is normal in the city is what will try and come and break down the walls of the church. And these are, these are some things that are normalized in this city. Sexual sin, Vancouver is. Sickness. Tolerance. That has no filter. And accommodates. I love the word accommodates. It's got so many doubles. Accommodates uh, everything. These are the very things now that are in the city that will begin to enter the church. And the church needs to take a stance against it. Most men and women who come to Vancouver from any country in the world to serve God here are usually unseated by this or this. And sometimes by poverty. But we leave poverty out for now. This and this are two things that have destroyed so many men and women of God that were sent to Vancouver from the Caribbean, from South Africa, from India, from Asia. They come here and they are unseated by these things. And this is what will try and ruin the church too. So today before we go, we'll try to pray against the spirits of infirmity. The Bible talks about it in um, Luke 13, 12. We'll pray against spirits that cause affliction. We read about it in 1 Samuel uh, 16, where a spirit would come and afflict Saul. We'll come against the spirit that causes heaviness or depression. Isaiah 53 talks about the spirit of heaviness of depression. And we'll pray against fear that brings its own anxiety and destroys lives. We'll pray for that. These things are so common. We'll pray this just for us, that in our midst, sickness ends. As in, recurring sickness ends. We'll pray against depravity, lust, porn, adultery from affecting the church. We won't pray that today. We'll pray that during the week. Come against these spirits, man. Why is it that it's so impossible to escape porn? Sure, there's a chemical side to it. There's a biological side to it. There are hormones that are released that 
require a new high. But I want to say to you that almost every sexual uh, uh, um, addiction has to it a demonic element or a spiritual element that can be easily broken. But after you break it, you need, not need to now step into right ways of living. That's the hard part. Jesus breaks things easily, but he cannot force you to live a right life. He can break a wrong life, but it is your choice to live a right life. Breaking is easy. Jesus breaks things very easily. Any questions? Just one last thing and we're done. Who believes that? Excuse me, Karen, I hear you mumbling there. You're not allowed to do that, you know. By now, it would have been 43 degrees in Pilgrim. People would have fainted by now. And I'd have thought it was the work of the Holy Spirit, and I'd have continued. <laughs> so. And the last one is Basic Combat 3. And that is Come Against Spiritual Powers. Come against spiritual powers that dominate your city. That dominate your city. And um, you'll know them by either it being displayed all over your city. Or you will know it by the religious sites that are increasing in your city. We'll discuss that off camera. So we won't be talking about it now. One of the things you find in any city in India, any city in South America, any city in Asia, is you know the dominant power that is worshipped in a city or that is exalted in a city by going to the airport, the railway station, or the entry to any city in India. You will see at the city gates the powers that dominate that village or that city or that town. And it's the same in South America. It's the same in many Asian countries. It's an old way of doing things. The Old Testament used to talk about that. And so, these spiritual powers can keep people under bondage for years and years and years and years on end. Thousands of years and hundreds of generations kept under wraps, unable to break out of it. It doesn't matter that you come to the city of New York or you come to London. What has been inculcated continues wherever you go. It's not geographical, it is spiritual. And we'll talk about that off camera and deal with what we need to deal with in this city. I will take it in bits so that our muscles get stronger. We won't take on 
Dara Singh immediately. Uh, you don't know who Dara Singh is. Um, uh, we, 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 you, we won't take on the ultimate Goliath immediately. We'll take, we'll take it in small bits. Okay? So I'm looking forward to this, guys. Church must be seasoned in terms of fighting. Can you look at Judges chapter 3, verse 1 to 5? Just so you know that this is something God really likes. Judges chapter 3, let's read it from the message. Judges chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Judges chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. I love this. And I'm slightly scared of it, but I really like it. Judges chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. These are the nations that the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. A church that does not know how to fight and has no battle experience is a very poor church. So over this week, make sure you ask these questions. One, are the prerequisites that we talked about on Saturday night met? Are the prerequisites we talked about last night met? Have you met those prerequisites? If you don't know what we are talking about, go and listen to yesterday's teaching. Are the prerequisites met? Second, before you, yeah, second, is your heart grieved, stirred up, angry. Hey, if someone came and did some harm to your child or to your mother or sister, what is your reaction? Doesn't something rise up within you? Isn't there anger? Isn't there grief? Isn't there a stirring up of zeal? I remember crossing a street in uh, Ladner on a pedestrian walk and this car came zooming by and I was walking with two others and um, um, I was the only guy. And the guy just zooms by and misses them by inches. And I remember how angry I was. I thought to myself, my God, there are days when you're not very Christian. But the reason I was outraged was because of the absolute flouting of rules as he missed these people by this much. And something rose up because I thought to myself, these two kids are in my care and what if something had happened to them? If a car going by can do that, why is it that my heart is not grieved, angry, zealous, when people are being kept captive for years on end, man? There is a reason why Jesus takes a whip and begins to chase things out of the temple. There are things that humans do to each other that animals wouldn't do to each other. How is it possible that we who are made in the image of God can be reduced to that kind of behavior if it was not demonic? And isn't it common? 
Is it rare? Is it once in a while happening? No, it's happening every day, every night around the world. Is there not a cause? If not you, then who? If not now, then when? Third question. Is your breastplate intact? Is your breastplate intact? What do you mean by that? Ask Manoj. Ask Dr. Manoj. He talked about the armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness. As in, are you walking righteously? Because man, that gives you such an advantage. Your breastplate is skewed, you get shot and there's no protection. Is your breastplate intact? It's not very difficult, God. Guys, we're not talking about walking in perfection. We're, we're talking about walking in right relationship with God. It isn't difficult. It isn't difficult. Right relationship with God. I can have arguments with my mom and still be in right relationship with her. Fourth question. Do you know how to apply? Do you know how to apply? Do you know how to apply Old Testament and New Testament stories in uh, battle? Old Testament, New Testament stories in prayer. In prayer. Do you know how to apply? If you don't, don't worry. We'll go down that route. Do you know how to apply Old Testament and New Testament stories in, uh, in prayer? Pulling out stories. This is what David did. This is what I'll do. This is what Samson did. This is what I'll do. This is what Paul did. This is what I'll do. These are just questions we won't answer today. Five. Do you know how to weaponize your words? Do you know how to weaponize your words? Do you know how to weaponize your words? As in, can you use words in prayer that become weapons? Because it's one thing Satan's scared of. He uses words to frighten us. He's scared that we may use the name of Jesus and the actual word to scare him. Because he didn't know how to handle it when Jesus, when he was being tempted, started using words. He didn't know how to handle it. You go read Isaiah 36 and 37. Sennacherib, who's an Assyrian king, uses words to frighten Israel. Along comes Isaiah. And he declares what God is going to do. And now the very words that God says frightens Sennacherib. Words can be weaponized. The word of God is a sword. It can be, I love weaponizing words where you can cut things down with the word of God. Will you obey when it doesn't make sense? Will you obey when it doesn't make sense. When one of Jeevan's uh, guys was sick and um, he was struggling, like it, it was half COVID, half other things, he was struggling and Jeevan uh, wrote to me and I was praying for that guy, his name's Prasad and is really good help to Jeevan. I was praying for the guy and uh, suddenly felt the Lord saying, uh, uh, while I was praying, I see the face of this man, and uh, um, just uh, half asleep, half awake, see the face of this man, and I 
as soon as I see the face of the man, I know that if I Google that, f I don't even know what to Google, but that I'd find it on Google. So I go and Google it, and this man's face comes up. And this is exactly the face I saw. And so uh, I find out who this guy is, and uh, I text Jeevan, and, and it's, it's also illogical. You see a face, you Google it, and the face comes up on Google. How? I don't know. I don't even know what to Google. What do you Google? Man with a beard? You don't know how many of them you'll get. But this face comes up, and I know it is this face. So I uh, text Jeevan saying, hey, Jeevan, there's this guy. Um, this is who he is. There's some connection with your friend who is ill. Find out who he is, and things will work out. What are the odds, man? The friend who is ill has a piece of land that this man is claiming as his and has taken him to court and was practicing rituals against him. Jeevan finds it out, prays. In a couple of days, the guy is home, healed. And I'm thinking to myself, how does this even work? How does God pull up a face out of eight billion faces? As you see that, it happens to be the very man who is a religious guru in India laying claims on a piece of land that he says he wants for his temple and is now doing harm to the family to whom that land actually belongs to. And once it's broken, the boy recovers. Can you obey when it doesn't make sense? Because everything that we do in this, uh, that every, everything that the Bible commands us to do in terms of fighting the devil doesn't look like fighting. It looks pretty illogical and foolish. And the last question. Can you walk in order? Can you walk in order? Luke chapter 8, sorry, Matthew chapter 8 verse 9. The centurion says to Jesus, I'm a man under authority, and I know how authority works. I tell somebody, they go, and I know the same way. If you tell something, it will happen. Point being, listen, walk under order. Walk under order, and you will find that the supernatural realm bows to you. Walk under order. And operate within your capability. Tomorrow, God will extend it. Any questions? Because I'm done. Any questions? We'll start here, guys. So this week, we'll up our praying for the city and begin to involve things where we actually take on the powers that hold people captive. We'll take on those powers, break their strength, because we are supposed to do this, and that's why I'm teaching these things. And very specifically, we'll work on things. Everybody praying together. Like Karen was saying, when an entire church begins to do it, that vice-like grip loosens. Okay, so before we go, I want us to break up into groups of four and uh, maintain a healthy social distance. Keep your masks on. And then begin to pray against it's easier to wipe it. 
So at home, if you guys want to call somebody else and pray, that's fine too. If you want to pray, pray on your own, that's fine. Or you can pray just, uh, I don't know. Um, but calling someone might be the easiest way. But here's what we're praying. We're praying against the spirit of infirmity. The spirit of infirmity is an actual spirit that causes sickness that sometimes doctors can't solve. You don't know why it keeps happening. There seems to be no medical explanation for it. But it just continues. It is, inf it is something that causes weakness, causes sickness. It is actually a spirit. We'll pray against spirits that afflict with sickness. We know that Satan did that to Job. We know that Saul suffered from it. Where spirits afflict people with sickness, like was done to Job. We'll pray against this spirit of heaviness or sadness. That's in Isaiah 53. And then we'll pray against the spirit of fear that causes all kinds of anxieties and stresses which leads to a whole host of other unnecessary diseases. So we'll pray this. We're praying only for the folks in the church. As in all of us who are here and all of us who have been here before. And uh, that's what I mean by the church. So we'll break up into groups of four and uh, pray this. Uh, just turn to Matthew 12.29 and then we'll start praying. Matthew 12.29. Any questions on uh, this? We're not praying, guys, remember, we're not praying for healing. We are praying that these attacks end in the lives of the people in this church. There are people struggling with cancer. There are people struggling with tumors. There are people struggling with arthritis. There are people struggling with consistent pain that hasn't disappeared. There are people struggling with diseases in this church. That this end, we're praying for each other, saying, we've got to end this. God doesn't send sickness. No father sends sickness. So where is it coming from? Sure, there are multiple sources, but the devil is certainly involved in these things. And that's what we're praying against. There are sicknesses that we haven't even mentioned that people have, that we haven't even heard of. I'm talking about in our midst, guys. I'm not talking about someone out there. So we'll pray for this first. Yeah? Matthew twelve twenty nine. If you're not here in person, call each other up and do it. Matthew 12, 29. Starting at 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, this is Jesus speaking, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God, as in the rule of God, has come upon you. And then he goes on to say, Again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? 
unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. The point being, as we go about doing this, either you should know in your heart that Satan, as a man who stands guard over his house, is bound in the name of Jesus Christ, set aside. Now that he's set aside, you go into the house that he guards and you bring out Manoj. Then you pull out Praful. And you're bringing all of them out. Why? Because the man who stood guard over them, not allowing you to enter, has been bound in the name of Jesus Christ, set aside. You can either speak it out or you can believe it, however you want to do it. But just keep that in mind as we pray this. Yeah? Cool. So Father, as we practice what we have been hearing, I just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will be the trainer uh, we will be the students and we learn to do this first for our sake and then for others outside but please begin this process we don't want to be theoretical we want to be practical so first we want to pray for those of us who have struggled with diseases and sicknesses that sometimes have no explanation or keep recurring we want to end this in this church and then have the courage to take it outside and do it for others too in Jesus' name. Amen. So break up into fours and uh, do not pray for healing. Pray against these spirits that bring these diseases. Yeah. Because when you drive out something, then you can pray for healing later. So, okay. So let's assume this is uh, brand, um, what shall we call it? Bill. Yeah. Stan. Yeah. <laughs> so let's assume this is Stan and Stan needs prayer. You said stand, right? Or oh, I'm going with Stan. Okay. So let's assume this is Stan and he needs prayer because he's uh, been suffering with this disease for very long. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I come against the spirit that keeps afflicting you right from when you were a kid that has crippled your body, that has brought you pain, that has done you harm. Don't know how you came in, what happened. But in the name of Jesus Christ, we come and break the power of this spirit to continue from afflicting you. If God shows you what it is, great. If God doesn't show you what it is, we let it be. Right now in a setting like this, it may be hard to identify something. But sometimes when you pray for people, God will show you exactly what happened. And then you pray for that and it goes away. But right now we're just starting this process of, as a church, we're going to exert this muscle of Jesus Christ that is in us. We are exerting his muscle. I can't hear you with your mask. We're praying for the entire church that we are breaking these four things from our midst. The spirit of infirmity that brings weakness. The spirit that afflicts like it did Job. The spirit of heaviness that brings depression and sadness. And the spirit of fear that creates its own set of physical problems. We're coming against these spirits. Because long ago, in 2005, we already know that there are wells of healing in this church. So the healing is already established. Let's drive out squatters who have no right in this land. Yeah? So please break up into four. And then at some point, Emily will come and sing that song, Rattle. And uh, then you can hang out for three or four minutes. And